I'm glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. As was mentioned, if you are one of our guests, we hope you will stick around after services. Let us get to know you and you to know us just a bit better. If you would, grab your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We will be reading verses 28 through 30. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, hear now the word of the true and living God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Let us pray. Help us now, Father, as we seek to answer questions that seem difficult, that may require heavy lifting, but in your light, you have provided us everything that we need in order to provide a sufficient answer to some of life's most difficult questions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The premise that undergirds this entire sermon series is that we, as Christians, desire to engage our culture. That is, we want to be evangelistic. We want to do outreach. This is what our Lord has commissioned us to do and to be to go and to make disciples of all nations, to go and preach the gospel to all creation, to go into the world and share with them the good news of what, what God has done in Christ Jesus. And what that requires is for us to get into discussion with people. It requires us not only to uh, live the life excellently, but we also have to open our mouths and share something in a compelling and a convicting way. And sometimes in the midst of those discussions, uh, we find ourselves on the defensive. Our skeptical friends can ask some very good questions, uh, some difficult questions. And so, the, the series, Six Questions to Ask a Skeptic, is seeking to take a page right out of the playbook of our Lord Jesus Christ, who when asked questions during His ministry, would sometimes reply with a question. Not always, but sometimes. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Someone once asked him. He replied, what does the law say? How readest thou, as the old King James said, right? How do you read it? And so that's what we want to do. These questions are designed not to be gotcha questions, but they are designed to open up further conversation so that we might engage not in... Uh, persuasive tactics that are manipulative, that come off as smarmy, but in non-manipulative dialogue. We are talking and they're doing talking, and we're not seeking to manipulate, but we are seeking to hopefully ponder very serious and sobering questions in a thoughtful way. The way we're defining skeptic, I'm leaning into the research of uh, Barna in his book, The Seven Faith Tribes, And this was published back in 2009. Again, as I mentioned last week, a little dated, but the terminology is still good. 
And essentially, a skeptic is someone who is non-religious, who when asked, what religion do you affiliate with, they say, none. Uh, and, and so there's been a lot of discussion in recent years about the rise of the nuns, uh, you know, in ES, right? Uh, most recent research presented here on this slide is that that number since 2009 has climbed up to, it dances between 20 and 21 percent these days, uh, according to the most rec recent uh, research. Those who hold to a worldview that does not acknowledge any religion, not just Christianity, but this would include Islam and Buddhism and all the major religions, those who claim not to believe in God. That's who uh, would fall under this. Really, though, uh, this is, these questions are good for all worldviews uh, in the world that belong under the umbrella of unbelieving. The skeptic are the skeptic, the skeptic person is the person who is an unbeliever. The Christian worldview, which we hold to, is the worldview that believes in the God of the Bible, the triune God. All other worldviews fall under the, the umbrella of unbelieving. And so, while the skeptic may serve for the atheist, the agnostic, again, these questions are just as uh, potent when having discussion with uh, anyone who is not a Christian. The thing is, if you hold to a worldview, though, that seeks to eliminate or at least marginalize God, these big questions don't go away. And the, the, the questions that we're seeking to answer involve questions, though stated a little differently, they include questions of origin. Where did we come from? Destination. Where are we going? Uh, what is the significance of this life? And that's the question really we're going to be addressing this morning is what's, what's the meaning of life? But also it involves questions of morality and conduct. Uh, and, and why should we be good if there is no God? And so these, these are the questions that we seek to answer. Quick review. Last week we began with why is there something rather than nothing? This is the origin question. Where did we come from? And as we saw, the unbelieving worldview especially that of the atheist and the agnostic, doesn't provide a very good answer to that question. Really, the best they can answer is, well, we really don't know where everything came from, why there is something rather than nothing, and we broke down what we mean by nothing and all that. On the contrary, though, we as Christians have a very good answer to this. And it's rooted in the foundation that there is a God who is our creator. We are answerable to him. We owe him honor and praise. We haven't always done that. We are sinners, and therefore we are in need of a Savior. But the answer of origins for us is, well, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We believe in a good God who created a good creation. Why things are the way they are now is a different question, and that uh, involves uh, the, the morality question and things like that. But again, uh, for the unbelieving worldview who says that essentially we, we really can't know, the best we can get is, well, we came from nothing, we're going to nothing, and that means, that, that has bearing upon the here and the now, by the way. It has bearing upon this question we're pondering this morning, which is why is there, uh, or excuse me, uh, what is the meaning of life? Or as my co-laborer in the gospel reminded me this week, buddy, uh, the, the, as, the, as Billy Preston once saying, nothing from nothing leaves Nothing, right? Yeah. So what, what is the meaning of life? Is there meaning to life? And really, we really want to hone this question down to, 
what is the ultimate transcendent meaning of life? Is there ultimate transcendent meaning to this life? The unbeliever, the the skeptic, will have to admit, based on their worldview, transcendent, no. There is no ultimate meaning to this life. Meaning is ultimately relative and boils down to what goes on between my ears in my own skull. As we'll, we'll see this as we go along. On the other hand, Christians, we do have a transcendent, ultimate meaning. And again, the answer to this question is rooted in God, who He is, why He created us, and those sorts of things. Well, let's dig in here and, and talk about what our, our skeptical friends may say. When we ask the question, what is the meaning of life? Well, they may reply with, well, you've got to make your own meaning. You've got to make your own meaning. You can have these uh, minuscule moments of meaning, but that, that's really it. Uh, and so you can find meaning in, say, as the picture here has, maybe is that a sunrise or a sunset? Either one, right? I find meaning just watching the sun rise or, or watching the sunset. Or I find meaning in a job well done, the work that I do, right? I find meaning in the smile of a baby or the laughter of a child. Now, you see the issue here and why we have to come down to the question of, okay, well, what kind of meaning are we talking about? Because the kind of meaning that is advocated in a sunrise or sunset or a job well done or the smile of a child is really transient meaning. It's fleeting because the thing is, once the sun rises, it's up, or once the sun sets, it's gone down, or uh, once you've, you've done a job well done, it comes down to what have you done for me lately, or the smile of a baby, that baby's going to be crying here in just a few moments, right, and fussing and all that. It's transient meaning, and it, and it really, again, is individualistic. It's what go, goes on between my, my ears in my, in my own skull, it's what my own biochemical fizzing, according to my, my brain, that's, that's all that really is. And so there's, there's no transcendent meaning, no meaning beyond the here and the now and, and what's going on in my own brain, which is very troubling when you think about it. If you are a person, like say you're having a conversation with a, uh, uh, an unbeliever who is a musician, and maybe they produce some of their own music. The... The, the beauty of that music, we, we, we believe in beauty because we believe in a God who produces beautiful things. Remember at the beginning, He not only made trees that were good for food, but were also pleasing to the eye. Our God delights in beautiful things. And so we as creators, we create beautiful things, and we can acknowledge the beauty of that. The unbelieving worldview, where's your, where's your foundation for anything beautiful? And you may think that your music is beautiful right now, but that's only because it's going, what's going on between your own ears. Will that music still be beautiful after you're long and gone? Hmm. And that's even a question that when, when uh, Dan Barker, who is uh, a very virulent atheist, was asked in a debate, even he had to kind of take a step back and scratch his head and go, hmm, that's a good question. The thing is, if you deny the existence of God, again, the big the answers to these big questions in life don't go away. They become much more difficult to answer. And in fact, when it comes to this question of meaning, we're left with a crisis of meaning. 
There's no transcendent meaning. Beyond your own self-interest, your own pleasures. And so make your own meaning. This is, this is kind of a hedonistic type worldview. Because again, it boils down to what I like and what I want and what I feel and, and those sorts of things. This, is, this has been the case for millennia with pagan religions. They've always been faced with an existential uh, crisis of meaning. Uh, the pagan religions have. But this, uh, this crisis of meaning is only amplified a thousand times when you eliminate all gods entirely. And now we're just left with a, a materialistic physicalism, uh, a humanistic worldview that really all we are are the random products of billions of years of purposeless accidents biochemical reactions just fizzing away in our own brains, stardust bumping into other stardust. And that's the flip side of this particular make-your-own-meaning type of response is, um, who says your meaning is best? Well, no one would, right? Because now we're, now we're dealing with relativism at that point. Hey, it's my meaning, you have your own meaning. But again, now we run into the problem of, what if, what if I find meaning... Let me generalize this. What if there's a person who finds meaning in hurting people? I mean, that, that's where they find their meaning. Who's to say that what they're doing is wrong in contrast to your own perspective on things, right? Well, you know, that's why we need, we, we need we're, we're herd creatures. We need a, a herd morality, okay? What if an entire culture determines that for the benefit of the human race, they actually need to get rid of the undesirables. Now, before you answer that question, remember, historically, that's happened. Who are we to say that what Nazi Germany was, was doing was wrong? I mean, they found purpose and meaning in that. Again, you see how this, make your own meaning, yeah, that, no, there's, there's no good answer to these questions when you start down that relativism road, Right? So what ends up happening is the philosophers get together and go down a different road and say, well, actually, all life is, is actually meaningless. We're just dancing to our DNA. And that's a direct quote from, oh, I had it just a moment ago. Um, he, uh, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, there it is. That was Dawkins. That's, that's a verbatim quote from Richard Dawkins in one of his books. We're just dancing to our DNA. And, and there really is no meaning. After all, we are the product of time, matter, and chance anyway. And so there, there really is no meaning. What's fascinating is, have you ever noticed what great big fat books these guys are writing on the meaninglessness of life? Who's to say what they're writing has any meaning to begin with, right? Um, should we be surprised, though, at the, the consequences of this particular road in this worldview? When you begin to tell people and begin to teach children that they are the product of random, purposeless, you're just an accident and, 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 and uh, time, matter, and chance just all coming together, that, that's all you are, should we be surprised at the uh, rapid increase of the devaluation of people when it comes to life? When you begin to teach young people, uh, children, young adults, that, that you're just... Uh, the product of molecules to man evolution in, a, in, in the vast void of space, 
You're breeding meaninglessness, which breeds frustration. Frustration breeds hopelessness. And without hope, you're just staring into the void and the, and the black void of even your own heart. Is it any wonder we've seen an uptick in the number of suicides among young people, teenagers especially? Why we see young people taking guns into schools and visiting violence upon other people? Worldviews have consequences. Theology matters. And if you will not believe in God and you then put your faith and your trust in what? Yourself, that's going to have consequence as well. These are contemporary examples. Look historically. With the, with the advent of Darwinian evolution, again, molecules to man evolution, that we are merely the ancestors of fish, we are sacks of mostly water, and, and we are dancing to our DNA. You had that on the scientific end, and on the philosophy end, you had philosophers who were popularizing things like God is dead. Well, should we be surprised that historically, the 20th century was the bloodiest century on record for humans? In fact, the very philosopher who popularized God is dead is the same one who predicted that the 20th century would be the bloodiest on record. He was right. World War I, World War II, Pol Pot, Mao, what happened in Russia when they adopted an atheistic worldview. The list can go on of the atrocities of the inhumanity uh, that humans have visited upon one another. These are the result, again, of worldviews. I know... Again, our skeptical friends may point to Christianity. They've done awful things in the name of Christianity. One, is that a product of an accurate reading of Scripture? No, we would say no, absolutely not. The Inquisition and, and things like that, no, absolutely not. That's a result of an abuse of the text of Scripture. Number two, actually it's the atheistic worldview that is responsible for more bloodshed than any other worldview in history. Again, worldviews have consequences. The way you see the world, the way you frame the world has consequences. So what do we say then? Is there a better answer? I believe that there is. You see, we, we move from the skeptical worldview that ultimately results in, in meaninglessness or just an individualized relativistic meaning to life to the Christian worldview that says actually there is ultimate transcendent purpose in this world. And this is from Psalm chapter 8. So let's go ahead and open our Bible to Psalm 8 because both this point and the next is going to come from this single chapter in Scripture. Psalm 8, notice verses 3 through 5. David here writes, when I look at your heavens, again, this is David looking toward the heavens that God has made, the work of your fingers, God's fingerprints all over the creation. We talked about that a bit last week. The moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? And it's true. We are creatures of the dust on a slightly larger speck of dust in the cosmos. And you mean the creator of this universe is interested in little old me? Verse 5, yet you made him, notice the acknowledgement, 
that God is the creator and we are the creature. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That is, we're created a little less than God. And, or, or one translation put it this way, you caused man to lack a little of God. Young's literal translation puts it that way. Here we are, we are creatures and, and we are lower than God and yet you crowned us with glory and honor. In fact, it is Christ who shows us a life where that crown never leaves the head. Unfortunately, we, because of sin, uh, abdicate the throne, as it were. But Christ reclaims the throne in, our, uh, in, in the glory and the honor. And it's in the face of Christ in His life that we actually see how we are to relate to our Creator. He is our Father. Remember the, the model prayer that Jesus gave to His disciples. Our Father. That's how it begins. And we see Jesus in John chapter 17 praying to His Father. He says, Holy Father. Both of these unite to inform us that we are not orphans left in this world just to dance to our DNA. That we have a good creator who for us is more than just our creator. He is our father. We are his children. Now, where you uh, can, can catch all of humanity in this is the reality that we are all creatures before God. And we all owe him Honor and thanksgiving. This is Paul in Romans chapter 1. Now, of course, the unbeliever, while he owes God that, refuses to give God that. And part of the invitation that we send out is no longer live in rebellion to your Creator. In fact, acknowledge Him as your Father by coming to Him through Christ Jesus. See your gospel moment here? Okay. He's our Father. And if we are his children, and he is our father, there is purpose behind this. Keep your finger there in Psalm 8, and I should have had you keep your finger in Romans 8, because we read just a moment ago that, of course, there is purpose. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's the intent and purpose of God. He wants us to look like Jesus in this world and to be conformed to the image of his son um, in order that he, the son, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so that's, that's the meaning of this for us as Christians. We are created for sonship. We are created to acknowledge God as our Father. I got three little boys, and as they've grown up, one of the things that has happened, it doesn't matter what they are doing, they can be some of the most mundane stuff. You know, you go to the playground, they're going down the slide or swinging on the swing or, or whatever it is. At some point, they're going to look to me and they're going to say, look, Dad. Right? Look, Dad. Look, look what I'm doing. And by the way, that, that's, that's scriptural. Proverbs chapter 17. Proverbs 17 and verse 6 says, Grandchildren are the crown of the aged, and the glory of children is their father's. You see, the thrill of the child is in bringing pleasure to their fathers. Look, Dad. In a greater way, the thrill of the children of God is to bring pleasure to their heavenly Father. Look, God. 
look, Father, look how I am seeking to bring you glory by being conformed to the image of your Son. The, the tragedy for the skeptic who carries this void within themselves is when they look around and are unable to say, look, Dad. When they look around and they have no one to give thanks to. Thanksgiving must be the, the antithesis of that worldview, right? Thanksgiving, who are you going to thank? You, you, you don't believe in the God who you owe thanks to. We were created for sonship. We were created to live as sons and daughters before our Father in heaven. Also here in Psalm 8, we come back to Psalm 8, we see that we are created for worship, created for sonship and also created for worship. Notice verses 1 and 9. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 9, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This, this is worship language. This is acknowledging the majesty of God, the bigness of God, that He is worthy of majesty because of what He has done. Our brother Batsel Barrett Baxter wrote a book entitled The Family of God. And in a, uh, one of the chapters, he provides this definition of worship, which I like. Listen carefully. Baxter writes, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. And there's, there's a whole sermon series in that definition. But just briefly, to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. That's what it means to worship God. Which, by the way, I think shows you it's a bit more than what we do here Sunday mornings, right? This impacts everything we do. Tuesday mornings, Thursday afternoons, Saturday nights, everything we do. Our conscience ought to be quickened by the holiness of God. That we live before a holy God. That uh, we are feeding our minds with the truth of God. And certainly that's happening as we open up and unpack the Scriptures here with one another. But you ought to do that every day, right? To purge the imagination with the beauty of God. And there's so much that uh, pulls at our imaginations, that pulls at our th thought processes. And yet we need to purge that with the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God and, and allow Him to pour His love into our lives that we might become conduits for His love in this world and to devote the will to the purpose of God. That's one of the things about uh, worldviews is, is, you know, it, there's, there's one of the questions we won't address during this sermon series, but it has to do with the will, the nature of the will. Free will, determinism. There is a very strong streak of determinism in the skeptic worldview. 
dancing to our DNA. You've just been programmed according to your biology to do what you do. Mm. I think we would have a problem with that. But really what this boils down to is, again, worship of God, that He is worthy of our worship. One of the, the common refrains in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, 12, and 14, Paul will talk about how what God is up to in this world is to the praise of His glory. Again, worship language. That He is to be praised for His glory in what He is doing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by the way, in this world. So once we are sons of God, children of God, we pour out our hearts in love and reverence to the God who has redeemed us. Now, of course, our skeptical friends will be quick to say, well, wait a minute, worship? No, I, I don't do any of that. The reality, the reality is you've you got to worship something. If you don't worship God, you're going to end up worshiping, worshiping all kinds of other things. And while back in the day, the things that people worship may have looked like birds and bears and beasts back then, today they sound kind of like vroom, vroom, right? Or, or ka-ching, right? Or maybe it comes right down to the almighty self and the deification of self. Self becomes God. <clears throat> One more. That's Romans 8.30. But on your way to Romans 8, let's make a pit stop in Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 and verse 7. context for this uh, has to do with how God is going to save His people. He will drive them into exile, but He will once again be their Savior. And so, verse 6, I will say to the north, give up to the south, do not withhold, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Notice this is uh, certainly has to do with the, the scattering of the people of Israel but we on this side of Calvary can look at this through the lens of Christ and recognize, ah, there's a universal and, and global intent in God in bringing His sons and daughters near to Him as Savior. Everyone who is called by my name, says verse 7, whom I created, notice, for my glory. What is the meaning of life? And again, it comes down to what we've been created for, and it is we have been created for the glory of God, uh, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We saw a bit of this uh, last week in Colossians 1, 16, where we are uh, created for Him, that is for Christ, uh, not only by Him, but for Him, as Colossians 1, 16 says. But here, Romans 8 and verse 30 the golden chain of redemption, <clears throat> which begins with the, the foreknowledge, God foreknowing us, verse 29, but then also those whom He predestined, verse 30, those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, don't miss that, by the way. Everyone who, whom I've called by my name, called there in Isaiah 43, 7. There's a direct link here of the calling of God. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's the end of this, is the, the glory of the triune God, by the way. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit glorifying 
themselves in the redemption of these sons and daughters and bringing them ultimately to glory. We've been built to glorify God in the here and the now to the praise of His glory, and also we will glorify God when He glorifies us in the there and the then. You know, I, I mentioned uh, last week <laughs> uh, that if you ask any of my boys uh, to answer the, uh, the first question of the, either the Westminster Shorter or Larger Catechism, they give you the answer. And in fact, let me just give you a little demonstration here. Zeke has offered to answer the question for us, uh, the very first question. So give me a mic here uh, at the podium. And Zeke, question number one. What is the chief end of man? To glorify Amen. There it is. Thanks, son. <laughs> the chief end of humans, of all of us, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That has bearing upon the here and the now, but also the there and the then. We've been created for that. And God is to be enjoyed. We are to delight in our Maker, to, to delight in the sweetness of the salvation and the redemption that He has brought us in Christ Jesus. And so, we acknowledge, again, I, I want you to see the foundations of these worldviews, because it is, it is that foundation, it is, it is, it is uh, on that foundation that they then build or attempt to build these answers. But as we are seeing foundation of the unbelieving worldview, the skeptical worldview, is actually a foundation of sand. And, and there, there aren't good answers to these questions. And in fact, uh, a lot of the time what ends up happening is they end up borrowing or stealing from our worldview in an attempt to provide some kind of coherent answer. They really don't want the meaninglessness that their worldview supplies. And yet, that is ultimately where it leads. And so if you can identify those foundations, it, you are better prepared and better equipped to provide a cogent reply to the very same question based on your own Christian worldview, which has as its foundation the, the firm foundation of God and His Word. By the way, if you want a bit more on worldviews and, and how that kind of works, last Monday evening during the, uh, the, the live stream broadcast, I broke down how that kind of works in the grand scheme of things. I invite you to, to watch that and explore it a bit more there. But in the meantime, su suffice to say that our foundation here for the question of the, the meaning of life is we're created by God. And since we've been created by God, our life has significance. It has meaning. It is meaningful. And we derive that meaning not from what's going on between the ears, but from above, from our Creator, even from our Father in heaven. Denying the existence of the Creator leaves life void of meaning. It produces that crisis of meaning. And so, no, in fact, we say that we are created for sonship that is undergirded by love, the love of God, we are created to worship, and that is undergirded by reverence, our reverence for God. 
and we are created for glory, which is undergirded by the work of God in time, space, and history for His own glory. I'll close with a quotation. Someone has said, Until a man has found God and been found by God, he begins at no beginning, he works toward no end. He may have friendships, his partial loyalties, his scraps of honor, but all these things fall into place and life falls into place only with God. We exist for God. Let us pray. O filler of all things, fill us with your fullness. Help us to recognize that indeed we were restless until we found rest in you. And help us to see our fellow image bearers in this world as restlessly in search of rest. And help us to be people who point them to you as the only source of that rest. And indeed, not only have we been filled with meaning, significance, but in like manner, Father, they too can be filled by you if they will turn to you. Help us, Father. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.